So, thank you, Mira, and the Reuters Institute for inviting me to give this talk. It's great to be back uh, in Oxford. I've spoken at a number of various different fora um, for the Reuters Institute over the last few years, and it's great to be here talking about this subject. I wanted to start with a quote from Ariel Dorfman, the playwright, uh, who is a frequent contributor to Index. Uh, and he wrote for us very recently, Never have we had more chances to communicate, more need to engage with one another, more technological horizons that could lead to a global community. And never before have we had more challenges and threats and surveillance conspiracies against free expression. And speaking as a journalist, as Mira said, but also now the head of one of uh, the world's longest-standing freedom of expression organisations, I think that comment is particularly applicable to media freedom. What I want to do today is talk to you about a decline we see at Index and Censorship in media freedom globally, and with a particular focus on its erosion in places where we thought... Uh, we had achieved media freedom and free expression, and that's in democracies. And what we see is a pincer movement happening, and that comes from, on the one hand, an increasing number of restrictions placed on media by governments, largely in the name of national security. So if you think of the example of Turkey uh, and Russia, but also here in the UK, many of the restrictions that are coming down on journalists and supposed democracies are coming in the name of national security. On the other hand... And the other side of the scale is this increasing mistrust of media uh, and new tools and mechanisms for silencing journalists through threats and intimidation, particularly in the online sphere. And I know that's something uh, that you have talked about as well. Index began noticing uh, a marked increase in threats against journalists uh, in the European region <coughs> a number of years ago. And we wanted to do something in response to that. We noticed and we know that a number of organisations do really excellent work recording the sort of high-level threats to journalists, you know, the, the worst, the most egregious threats, the killings, the jailings, uh, the harassment. We wanted to look at the sort of lower down things, the things that were under the radar but were starting, to, we thought, to increase anecdotally. So online harassment of journalists, um, journalists being publicly denounced by official figures. We began to notice that this was on the increase. And so what we started to do in 2013 was we began a project called Mapping Media Freedom to document all of those threats, so the, the micro threats right up to the major threats, and to try and do that not just for the big newspapers and the big broadcasters, but for the local outlets, to try and build a picture of what was happening in Europe. Um, and my talk today will be primarily about that work, that work that we're doing in Europe and neighbouring countries, but I think a lot of it is applicable elsewhere. And so I'm going to take you to our Mapping Media Freedom project, except I'm not because I just clicked on the wrong thing. So this is our Mapping Media Freedom project. Mapping Media Freedom essentially documents a, a, an array of threats facing journalists and journalism in all European Union countries and a number of neighbouring countries. So that includes Russia, Belarus, Ukraine uh, and Turkey. Um, our project uh, seemed quite manageable two years ago. Uh, it's feeling a little less manageable now and certainly since the coup in Turkey, much uh, of our time is taken up in documenting uh, abuses against journalists in Turkey, but increasingly also uh, what's happening in Russia, Ukraine, 
and now in places like Hungary and Poland too. So I'm just going to walk you through some statistics uh, and then talk a little bit about some other um, thematic threats facing media freedom. So this database, Mapping Media Freedom, recorded 571 threats and limitations to media freedom during the first half of 2017. During the first six months of the year, which is the latest that we've collated data for, three journalists were murdered in Russia, 155 media workers were detained or arrested, 78 journalists were assaulted, there were 188 incidents of intimidation, and by intimidation that includes psychological abuse, sexual harassment, oh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, threats against female journalists later, um, and defamation. 91 criminal charges and civil lawsuits were filed. Journalists and media outlets were blocked, deliberately blocked from reporting in 91 incidents, and 55 legal measures. I think, think about that for a moment. 55 legal measures were passed that could curtail press freedom. This is in a region that we see or think of as you know, the bastion often of, of media freedom. And many of those cases and some of those cases did not come from traditional culprits. And I'll talk about that in a little. Um, in the first quarter of the year alone, there was a fourfold increase in the number of media professionals arrested compared to the fourth quarter of 2016, and obviously much of that is accounted for by uh, Turkey. I just wanted to give you a couple of um, examples of the kinds of, a, of attacks that are going on against uh, media, and, and I'll just pick out a couple. Um, so, the three Russian journalists killed. Uh, in March, the editor-in-chief of the Asia-Russia Daily died in unexplained circumstances, but he'd been back in the capital for only two weeks when he was violently assaulted by unknown assailants. He's known for articles, he was known for articles critical of the Russian federal government's policies. Two journalists were killed in the second quarter of 2017, including the editor-in-chief of a local newspaper, Ton M, who was shot five times by an unidentified perpetrator. This is not, unfortunately, an unusual pattern either globally. Uh, I, know, I, I understand um, this is something you have looked at as well, but Mexico, for example, I don't know if we have someone from Mexico here. <coughs> you know, at least, I think, 10 journalists have been killed this year. I mean, it's, it's quite horrific uh, when you think about it. Um, and again, in a country that you know, is considered to be, by many, relatively stable... When we think about uh, physical assaults, we recorded 42 just in the first quarter in the region that, that we're um, assessing. Um, that includes Azerbaijan, where blogger and human rights activist Mehmed Husseinov was detained and tortured by police before being fined 105 euros for disobeying them. He was later sentenced to two years in prison on defamation charges. And this is a pattern we see increasingly as well. Not only are journalists physically targeted... Um, but then often we find that if that doesn't do the job to intimidate you, you will find that you are arrested on trumped-up charges. It's astonishing the number of journalists, for example, in Azerbaijan that seem to take drugs uh, because there are an awful lot of them in prison on drug charges. So, or tax evasion. Journalists seem to be really good, for some reason, at tax evasion. Uh, a lot of governments around the world like to suddenly discover that their journalists are not paying taxes and, and bang them up uh, for that. But it's not, and the point that this is what I want 
the point I want to make today. It's not just places like Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. In Italy, in the first quarter of 2017, there were seven cases of journalists being physically assaulted. In one instance in March, a reporter was beaten and needed emergency care. We're often also at the moment, given the increased number of protests that we're seeing globally, finding journalists deliberately targeted uh, in protests. And in fact, I brought with me a report that we did earlier this year on press freedom in the United States, uh, which I'm happy to talk about uh, in Q&A. But that uh, documents a number of cases where journalists are deliberately targeted in protests. And that's something I think we need to be really alert to and perhaps together might think about ways that we can better protect journalists who are going in to cover protests because it seems only that protests are on the increase. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the other various ways that governments and others are seeking to put pressure on journalists. One such way is through travel bans. We've obviously heard about the US bans of people coming into countries. One favoured tactic of a number of governments is to ban their journalists from leaving the country. Uh, and it's a favoured tactic because it enables governments to say, but we, we have freedom of expression. These people are free to talk. If they're not free to move, it makes it very difficult for them to articulate their cases. It would be much better, I think, if it were not me standing up here, but say Khadija Ismailova. Uh, the very brave and courageous reporter from Azerbaijan. She can't because she's subjected to a travel ban. It does make a difference, even with our globally interconnected world. It makes a huge difference that those people are not able to stand in front of the United Nations, UNESCO, and make their cases for themselves. Um, today, uh, a colleague of Index on Censorship, the cartoonist, and we consider cartoonists as well to be journalists, the cartoonist Zunar uh, was called again to the police station on charges related to his cartoons which criticise the government of Malaysia and if convicted of all the charges against him he faces 43 years in prison. He also faces a travel ban. He has said, as others have, the ban directly undermines a journalist's ability to network, share ideas and crucially build financial support, something I know that you have talked about a lot this term. Something we're also noticing in, on the increase is the use of Interpol. Uh, governments are increasingly abusing the Interpol system to try and target journalists um, by issuing these things called red notices. Since August, at least six journalists have been targeted across Europe by international arrest warrants issued by Turkey, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. Uh, in the most recent case on October the 21st, the journalist and blogger Zanara Ahmed from Kazakhstan was detained in Ukraine on an Interpol warrant, the so-called Red Notice, and is currently in a temporary detention facility. Mostly these Red Notices, pretty much in all cases against journalists, are obviously politically motivated. Before I um, come to my closing remarks, I wanted to talk a little bit more about what's happening in democracies. And I think here, thank you, not only are we seeing the use of increased use of restrictions on journalists through national security legislation. So if you think about um, something like the Investigatory Powers Bill in the UK, which gives the government the ability to snoop on what journalists are doing despite attempts to, to restrict it, um, 
We are seeing increasing attempts to use national security legislation to restrict what journalists do or potentially restrict what journalists do. Um, but we're also seeing other factors and other groups trying to limit what journalists do. So, for example, uh, the use of Twitter mobs by certain groups, uh, particularly far-right groups, to undermine and discredit <coughs> journalists. Uh, and, and Sweden is an example of this. An, there was an ongoing campaign earlier this year to discredit and undermine journalists, and it was uncovered by Eskilstuna Kurinen newspaper. Journalists at the paper reported on a project that was orchestrated by a, a right-wing organisation where journalists from that organisation were called secretly and recorded. Um, and this organisation called these journalists to try and get them to say certain words on tape that would end up discrediting them. And then the, the, the pieces were really heavily edited and posted online to make it seem as if journalists were partisan in their coverage. And in the era of misinformation, that kind of act, I think, uh, can have really powerful implications. And this attempt to discredit journalists, um, I think, is, a, is an increasing element of what we're seeing happening um, globally. And we'll come back to talk about our favourite um, American president uh, shortly. Um, but it's not just... In it's not just the likes of the far right that try to discredit journalists in this way. Um, we've seen the government in Romania carrying out a campaign of intimidation against journalists who had covered protests in the capital. Um, and this public denunciation that we see happening by officials of journalists, I think, creates an environment in which people think it's okay to have a go at journalists and journalism themselves. Um, so, for example, in Romania, we had the Minister of Internal Affairs issuing a list of journalists at a press conference who she said had promoted the recent, recent protests on social media, and she named and publicly condemned them. Um, and she talked about them as public personalities, opinion leaders, or members of political parties. In fact, all but one were journalists. And I think that very public shaming and naming of journalists which encourages, I think, targeting of particular journalists is, in, is problematic. All of this environment is helped and, I think, exacerbated by something that I know you will be familiar with, and that's a slump in trust in journalists and journalism almost everywhere. Uh, last year, a quarter of all people polled by Ipsos Mori said they would trust journalists to tell the truth. So in other words, 75% of the people polled would not trust journalists to tell the truth. In fact, journalists in the UK in that survey were the least <coughs> trusted group just shortly after politicians, government ministers and estate agents. Uh, even less trusted than bankers. Um, and what I think is happening when we because of this trust, lack of trust in media, and we can talk a little, I hope, in, in Q&A about why that might be happening, um, is it's being exacerbated, as I say, by public figures feeding that sense that journalists are not a group. You are not a group that should be trusted. Um, and particularly when the President of the United States goes out and, and accuses journalist that he doesn't like of being fake news, I think that creates an environment in which attacks on journalists are seen, journalists 
are seen as fair game everywhere. I have a lot of conversations um, and I travel a lot talking about trust in media, tax on media freedom and so on. And I often get this pushback that says, well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what Trump says. It doesn't really have an effect elsewhere. And by the way, look at how fantastically the New York Times and the Washington Post are doing as a result. We can talk about that as a, as a side benefit of what's happening at the moment. But what I would suggest is that it does matter. What's happening in democracies, I think, really matters, not just for media freedom in those countries, but I think it really matters for, those, for countries internationally that look to the likes of the United States as an excuse to do the same in their own countries where it possibly has many more damaging effects. Um, and, and we can see this happening, we know this is happening because governments are being quite open about it. So the Cambodian government threatened to expel foreign news outlets earlier this year and they specifically cited Donald Trump as an inspiration for their own country to do the same thing. Look at what Donald Trump is saying about fake news, they said. The Americans can do it, we can do it too. And that has really damaging implications, particularly for countries that don't have a plurality um, of media. And that's, I think, the final area that I would want to talk about before I just want to show you the, um, the map, which is one of the damaging additional factors, I think, into this mix is the potential decline in the number of news outlets trustworthy news outlets that people can draw from. If news outlets are forced to close because of the pressure on the financial model, it becomes increasingly difficult to find a sufficient number of news organisations in a particular country that demonstrates a plurality of media. The United States has a wide array of media outlets. Um, the UK, we're very lucky to have a wide array of news outlets, but countries where they start deliberately targeting media, where there is already perhaps a smaller number, becomes very dangerous. Uh, and it doesn't take very long, that's the other thing. The decline in media freedom in Turkey, for example, has taken almost no time at all, really. Um, and <laughs> it happens very fast and with almost no recourse, no ability to shift the needle. And one of the difficulties and one of the things that I would put to media organisations, I think, is finding ways to push back, particularly in an environment where governments don't want to do it. Governments don't want to speak out publicly against Turkey. It's hard enough to get government here to talk about human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. It's almost impossible to get them to talk out about abuses against the media. So the question, I think, becomes for this group and for us as, as media freedom campaigners, what can we do to ensure that it happens elsewhere? I was at a talk last week with the Society of Editors and um, I was there with a, a Turkish journalist and, and someone from Al Jazeera's listening post. And a number of people at that talk made the point of where were you? Where were you? When media organisations are being shut down, 
Do you, as the opposition media organisation, or media organisation with opposing political views, do you speak out or do you keep silent? And quite often what we see in these environments in which a particular group is targeted, either from a political standpoint or a religious standpoint, is the other media organisations sit by silently. And I think there is a question for us as media organisations. If we believe in free expression and we believe in media freedom as a value that benefits all of us, regardless of our political stance or our religious stance or what have you, to perhaps take a more vocal stand when our colleagues are being threatened globally. And that's the question that I would put to you as we finish. What more can we do to support all of our colleagues worldwide, regardless of their political positions? Thank you. Thank you.